Oops, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. Many of you, for the first time, I know that you're here for different reasons. Some of you are bringing students to Campbell this weekend, and so you joined us. Some of you are showing up for um, after you've been in VBS this week for the very first time, and then others of you, I have no idea why you're here, but we're delighted that you are here to join us. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the lead pastor. I don't wear a name tag because for whatever reason, those tags are allergic to my shirt, and I don't want it sticking halfway up, you know, during the message and you being distracted. There's enough to distract you anyway, but that's not necessary. Uh, so thank you for being here. Um, I, in fact, I, I want to encourage those of you who are part of the Grace Community Church family. And if you've been here more than two or three times, you are part of the Grace Community Church family. Meet someone that you don't know. In fact, meet two people that you don't know after the service. Try to get connected with these people. It's an awful thing for people to go to church and leave and say, nobody even knew I was there. I mean, look, we all want to be anonymous at some level when we're checking out a church. I understand that. But at least let folks know you're glad that they're here. The Lord will lead them, and so don't, you know, twist their arm and say, I know where you live, you better be back next Sunday. Don't say anything like that. So, if you were here for the first time, I need to say this as well. We're right in the middle of a very small series called Covenant, God's Gracious Gift to His People. This really follows up nine months of preaching from the, from the book of Genesis, and it just flows right into uh, this idea of covenant. God made a covenant, first of all, with creation, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham. That's the first really big covenant that we pay attention to when he made a covenant with Abraham. And he essentially said, I'm going to give you so much you won't even be able to contain it. When it looked like those promises were not going to come true late in his life. God blessed Abraham and Sarah with a child. And then he didn't put any stipulations. A covenant in the old days was really an agreement that was imposed upon a kingdom by a greater kingdom or a small country by a greater country. God, who is far superior to Abraham, says, not only am I going to promise you all of these things, but if this covenant is broken... I'm going to take the curse upon myself. He didn't put any conditions on Abraham except circumcision. He said, that's the only thing you've got to do. That's your only responsibility. Years later, over 400 years later, we come to Sinai where the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and God makes a, a, another covenant with his people. It's not replacing the first one. It's just building on it. And um, in that covenant... He says, you've got quite a few responsibilities, 619 laws to be exact, which some were very direct, others were principles that applied in many more situations than those that were given. And if you don't keep this law, then there will be a curse upon you. Well, of course, nobody can keep the law. Today, we come to the Davidic covenant. And again, yesterday, late yesterday afternoon, when it was far too late to change anything, you know, I thought, you know, I bet you there are going to be a lot of people here who are in for one time. They're coming in to visit or coming in for the first time. And I don't want you to be lost. So I'm going to do my best to explain where we are along the way. But then next week, we're going to look at the new covenant. And Jesus said, this cup 
Remember at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So all the way through and then after Labor Day, we're going to start a series in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I I, I didn't plan to say all of that, but I thought, well, I, I better help you at least make sense. So that at the very least, you know, if you say, that kind of make any sense at all, you'll know that this is a little bit unusual. I mean, it's true, but not as true as you might think it is. Uh, I do want to say one special thing. Sean, I was so grateful for Sean just praying for so many people who are struggling. And my goodness, so many more needs in our body that are not mentioned. But we do want to say we're so grateful uh, that James Stevens is here today. James had a wreck earlier this week. And if you know James, I see that, you know, it's kind of like Roy Lytle's one-man standing ovation last week. I think it was last week. But James um, was in a wreck, and we're so grateful that he, his car didn't look too good, but uh, he does. We had another friend, Pippa Rader, whose father will be speaking to us after Thanksgiving from Australia, who was in a wreck the day before James. Same thing, car. You look at the car, and you say, how did anybody walk away from it? Both of them walked away with scratches, and that's all. So thank the Lord, and a little bit sore. Well, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever desired to do something great for God and he just said no? I mean, you want to do something that that really shows your gratitude for the Lord and for whatever reason he says no. I, I know, I know that some of you have thought about quitting your secular job and going into ministry. Other than the fact that I think you well may have lost your mind. I do affirm your heart and your desire to to serve the Lord in this way, to just pour out your gratitude by saying, let me serve you full time, Lord. I want to do that. But for whatever reason, he has kept you at your post. Or if you're a giver, I imagine that you just wish that God would give you some money so that you could give to particular ministries. When I was director of TVR, I can't tell you how many times Jim Acock said, I wish I had a million dollars I would give it right now. And I know it's true. He would too. A lot of people wouldn't. Jim Acock would have given it. I, You know, whenever I hear about somebody winning $163 million in the lottery, you know, I start thinking, what would I do with $163 million? And I, I never get... Far beyond tithing is very seldom that I get beyond that. I mean, truly, my mind immediately goes to thinking, well, okay, there's a, <clears throat> a new building at Grace Community. We'll just tear this one down, start over, you know, and then TVR and all these different ministries. And then start thinking about how we could, what we could do for our kids, you know, what we could do for Jonathan and Sarah who were there. By the way, the scream you heard before the service was Jonathan just getting back from Japan and surprising his mom with her, his presence. And she was pretty excited about that. Oh, my gosh, she said. That was what she said, if you, if you heard that. And she picked that up from me when I say that. Um, but... So I, I think about what we would do for these guys and my kids and my grandkids and, 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 and for people who have needs. 
Just think about, oh, I'd love to give you this. And then and only then do I think about how fine life would be for Allison and me. And I, I mean, I do think about that a little bit, you know. So $163 million. And then I realize, oh, but you've got to buy a lottery ticket in order to win that. So I don't plan to do that. I mean, I'm tempted when it's $163 million, Who's not? But it's a tax on the poor, so I'm not going to do it. But I assure you that my heart is such that I would do good things with this money. So why won't the Lord give me $163 million? Well, two reasons, perhaps. Uh, one, he just may be able to get along without my generosity. And two, he knows me better than I know myself. Most of the time, when we find that we're disappointed, when we have a heart that really wants to serve God, and we're disappointed because God, for whatever reason, says no, we discover that His plan for us is far greater than anything we would have wanted to do for Him. That's what we find in this text today, where God makes this incredible covenant with David after He said, oh Lord, I want to do something great for you. And the Lord says, no, but I'm going to do something far better for you. That's our covenant God, graciously giving undeserved gifts to his children. Our text this morning is 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17. And it describes what theologians have come to call as the Davidic covenant. As we read through this text, I want you to look for the word covenant. And we'll highlight that verse after... We read and pray. So if you would please stand as we read 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 to 17. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The king in verse 1 is David. Now when the king lived in his house. And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet. See now I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. Let me just stop for just a moment and explain this. David, you remember, took over after Saul had made such a mess of his office as king of God's people. And Saul had just sort of had the ark of the covenant in in mothballs, in storage. And David says, this is just not right. I live in this incredible home and, and the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. What a noble thought, what a noble plan. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut you off, cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. You're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. Your name is going to be great in all the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is being referred to here? Jesus. And I'm going to mention this later, but this is the best place to just see this. So often prophecies in the Old Testament had a word for the moment and a word for the future. He's talking about Jesus here, but now he goes Right back to talking about the kings of men. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. With the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, eternally. Now he's back to talking about Jesus. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And Father, you have spoken to us. And you will continue to speak through your word. I pray that it will come alive to us. And I pray that you will give us understanding. And that we will begin to see your ways and how you work with us and how you bring us to knowledge about yourself and that we will be encouraged. We're so grateful for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, BC. Okay, I know you saw it. The word covenant is in, in verse, It's well, it's uh, not there at all. Did you look for the word covenant or did you get caught up? Did you look for it? It's not in there. And yet, last week we, were, we learned how important this theme is in Scripture. It's mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament. And almost everyone acknowledges that this is the place where we find God's covenant to His people, but coming through David. And when I say everyone, I'm not just talking about theologians who put fancy names on on truths of Scripture. But I'm talking about Old Testament and New Testament writers alike. Everybody saw this as God's special covenant with David. It's one of the main covenants in Scripture. Pointing straight to Jesus. And yet it wasn't as clear early on as it became over time. You remember the first words of the New Testament? These are the genealogies of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Everybody knew by the time Jesus came that this promise that God made David was pointing 
to the Messiah. So why no specific mention of covenant here? I'm going to take a stab at answering that. And, <clears throat> and along the way, I want to talk about our church history class that is beginning Wednesday night here at our, our church, but it's mostly online. Uh, God's relationship with mankind is not as direct as most of us would like for it to be. I remember, I, I mean, last week, you remember we, <clears throat> we talked about Moses and how God gave the law to him. In fact, didn't mention this last week, but those Ten Commandments that he chiseled out on stone with his hand and he gave to Moses to take down represented all of the law. So, <clears throat> wouldn't it be simpler for God to just deal with us all the time that way? What, well, the answer is no. I mean, in fact, the Israelites said, look, Moses, you speak to us on behalf of God, but please don't let God speak to us lest we die. God showed himself in his holiness, and they said, we're not up for this. You speak to Moses, and then, I mean, to God, Moses, and then you tell us what he said, and we'll, we'll listen. But we can't take God speaking to us personally. God is holy completely other than we are. His thoughts are far above our ways. He is the creator. We are creatures. We are made in the image of God. He is God. And the ways that he reveals himself to us are not the ways Sometimes that we think we would do it if we were God. God has chosen to reveal himself to us through creation, through our consciences, through scripture, and through Jesus. What he has revealed in the Bible is totally different than any God of any other religion. Every other religion says... You've got to find a way to make yourself presentable to God. You've got to find a way to get to God. He's out there. And if you don't do this, this, and this, and this, big trouble for you. The scripture tells us that there's nothing we can do. Because of our sin, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves presentable to this holy God. But good news he has made himself available to us through Jesus. God comes to us because it's impossible for us to get to him due to our sin. Just ask the Israelites who experience God up close and personal. We cannot take this holy God without a buffer. Well, in our study of Genesis, we, we've seen God come to Abraham uh, in a theophany. He comes as a human being. In this vision that he had when God put him to sleep last week, we saw God walking through the halves of the animals, taking upon himself, indicating that he would take the curse upon himself for this covenant, this agreement. Even if Abraham messed up, he would take the punishment. He came as a smoking Fire pot. It was just this fire that was walking between these animals. Those are theophanies. Um, 
God spoke directly with Moses once in a theophany at the burning bush. He saw this burning bush again, the fire that was not consumed. But there's no indication that God ever came to Moses like a human being, like he did to Abraham. When he held Moses in the, in, in the cleft of the rock or just in a little cave-like area and he walked by, it says that you can't see my face, I'll let you see my back. Maybe there was some sort of a appearance of a human being. But for the most part, God just spoke to Moses directly. He chiseled out the Ten Commandments. He didn't come to Moses like he did to Abraham. God came to the prophets in dreams and visions and through strong impressions. How did David write the Psalms? Most of the Psalms were his response, oftentimes emotional responses to experiences of his life as he processed life. A lot of times he was saying, thank you, Lord, you're the greatest of all. Our God is so much more powerful than other gods because they are no gods. And sometimes he was saying, why don't you just kill me, God? I mean, life is that bad. I see no goodness in this at all. Most of the time he came around to see the goodness of God. Two Psalms, 44 and 88, I believe they are. There's no resolution. It's just life is hard. Time and again he talked about, I have sinned and I have wounded in spirit and in body. Heal me, forgive me. So David wrote about his relationship with God, and it became Scripture. Hebrews tells us that God spoke to us in various ways through prophets. And finally, in these last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, his only son, creator of the universe, and God himself. So once again, why is not the entire Bible given to us like the law was given to Moses, just word for word? Here's what you're supposed to tell them. Wouldn't that? I don't know. I don't know why God reveals himself in the ways that he does. I I knew maybe 10 years ago, but I was a lot smarter then than I am now. I don't know why God does things the way that he does. Not everything Moses said came directly from God. Word for word, of course, and it's still scripture what he said. David never saw God in any form, yet the Psalms clearly come from one greater than him. And and that's one of the interesting things, too. I've said this before, but since there are so many first-timers, I can say just about anything, and it sounds new. Um, One of the interesting things about the Christian scriptures, it's the only scriptures of any religion where the adherents of that religion complain to their God. Just don't complain to God in the other scriptures. But David's relationship with the Lord was real. The letters of the New Testament read like personal letters. Because that's what they are. That's what they were. That's what they are. Personal letters. And I can just see Paul sometimes dictating a letter because his eyesight was so poor. And I wouldn't be, he said, wait, wait a minute, before you, before you write that, let's say that another way. And the Holy Spirit was writing scripture as Paul wrote in those ways. That's speculation, I don't know for sure. 
But the, but the letters read like that. Sometimes scripture seems very difficult to understand. In fact, Peter said, you know, Paul's letters, I, I, sometimes they're, they're tough. I mean, it's, it's tough sledding when you start reading Paul's letters. When you look at a book like the Gospel of John, you see a rather simple man, a fisherman, writing a profound book using very simple vocabulary, very simple grammar. You also see a competitive spirit that John had with Peter. I mean, we learn things about Peter that we don't learn anywhere else. Some of Peter's mistakes, some of his sins, some of his big mouth kind of stuff, as I'm sure John thought about it. What we don't see in John is John and James asking the Lord, shall we bring down fire from heaven on these Samaritans who, who don't want to see you? We don't find John's mother coming up and saying, Jesus, can, can my two sons, James and John, sit on the throne on either side of you? It's his personality coming out. We see it in the other Gospels, but we don't see it in John's Gospel. So God is working through ordinary people doing amazing things. Revealing himself to us in profound ways. What John does do is to give us very clear statements about Jesus' divinity. And the importance of belief in him alone for salvation. He does so, as we've already said, in the most profoundly simple way imaginable. It would seem impossible that a simple man like John could structure a book like the Gospel of John. It also seems like it would be enormously difficult for an intelligent man, or an extremely intelligent academic type of a man, to, to dumb down the grammar and the vocabulary. I suppose it could be done. But look, you read the Gospel of John, and it's always a good place to recommend people to start. When they're wanting to learn about God, tell them to read the Gospel of John. Because God is all over that book. Jesus is God. We see it so plainly in John's Gospel. If you will attend, now all of that is, is moving toward this. If you will attend this church history class, You'll learn how we got our Bible and why we can have with utmost confidence that what we read is what the writers wrote in the days that they did it. There are thousands of documents that verify the validity of this book where there's nothing close in all of antiquity. All the, all the writings of Julius Caesar, of Homer, all the people, Plato and Aristotle, nothing close. And yet, attack is made on this word. Is there any wonder why? Now, whether we believe what these writers say is another story. I mean, look, when, when people say... <clears throat> When we read John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Whether you believe that or not is up to you. It's not your good work, Scripture says. It's only repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Acknowledging who you are before God. That, acknowledging that you're the person he says you are. A covenant breaker, a sinner. 
but you recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for you. And in believing that, you become his child. You don't have to do that. But it is hard not to acknowledge that that's what he said. Jesus said it. What are you going to do with it? God is mysterious. Not mystical, but mysterious. He has chosen not to reveal himself all at once. But when the time was exactly right, Jesus came to the earth. We see that with Abraham. When God was making this covenant with Abraham, he said, look, you're, 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 Your offspring are going to go and live in a land as servants. And then when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, I am going to bring them out and they're going to take over this land. This land where you are right now. God was saying, there's there's a time, just hang on. With Jesus, we're told that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Why does he do that? I don't know. Quit asking me these questions. I don't know. Everything we need to know about God has been revealed to us in Scripture. So how many of you would say, I know everything that there is to know about God? No, of course not. In fact, most of us know less than we did years ago. The more you know, the more you recognize that he is so... God just expands in our hearts and minds. The more we know about him, the close, the, the, sooner, the sooner we know about him, the sooner we recognize we'll never know everything there is to know about him. And even if we understood every, if we could quote the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, <clears throat> and we knew all of the truths, and we could tell you exactly the way God intended for him to be told, there's still a great deal about God we'll never know. We don't get it all at once, do we? We come to learn about God gradually with particular growth spurts that accompany knowledge and experience in our lives. As it is with individuals, so it has been with the church. While John told us clearly, Jesus is God. I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He said it very clearly. It took centuries for theologians in the church to be able to articulate that in such a way that everybody said, we agree. It doesn't surprise us that God reveals himself to us over time as individuals, but for some reason we think that the church understood everything there was to know right at the very beginning. You know, and when Peter preached The sermon at Pentecost, he said, and by the way, this God that I'm referring to is a triune God, a trinity, if you will. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence. He didn't say that. In fact, it doesn't say it like that anywhere in Scripture. But Scripture leads us to that inevitable conclusion that that's who our God is. So when someone says, Don't Christians and Muslims serve the same God? Don't Christians and Jews serve the same God? God of Abraham? If he is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we serve the same God. Otherwise, we don't. And so, understanding God for who he is 
It's not that people in the second and third century didn't know. But they hadn't said it just right yet. And there were a lot of attacks and people saying, there's no way Jesus could be both God and man. How ridiculous is that? So, well, let's look at the scripture. Yeah, well, let me show you some other scripture. And it took time for the church to be able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. And, in fact, that debate's been going on for 20 centuries and continues today. When we understand how God revealed the truth of Scripture to church members who were just like we are, it helps us to know how to understand and proclaim the great God that we serve today. <clears throat> you know what's a, <clears throat> what's a real shame? It's a real shame when people sort of get a very narrow understanding of God. I have a friend one time who was talking about something to do with the Christmas story. And he was talking to a group of people in his church. Maybe it was a Sunday school class or something. And he was talking to people about the Christmas story. And he said, you know, we don't know for sure that this happened. We see it in all the Christmas pageants. And I can't remember what it was. And then one person said, well, I'm just going to believe what the Bible says. <laughs> and I mean, that was his point. The Bible doesn't say it. You know? But we're so convinced that Scripture says something. And when you start... <clears throat> Seeing how the early church wrestled with these truths. And they didn't have the benefit that we have of 20 centuries of thought. 20 centuries of wrestling with scripture. <clears throat> when we understand what they went through, it helps us to get it right. It took centuries for the church to be able to write the creeds or what we would call doctrinal statements. Why? Well, come on Wednesday night to our church history class and begin to discover, to discover why. Let me ask you a question. Those of you <clears throat> for whom this is not your first time. In our study of Genesis, did you learn anything at all in, in, in the study of Genesis? Do you know more about Scripture now than you did a year ago? then you know what? You know more about God than you knew about him a year ago. But possibly at the same time you know less because he's so much bigger than you thought he was. What's the big deal about what happened in the 4th century? What's the big deal about what happened in the 16th century? I can promise you, if you will participate in this class, you'll not only have the answer to that question... But you'll know more about Scripture and more about God than you currently do. Even if you are here every Sunday morning and, and, and you attend every home group meeting this fall. If you enjoy history, this class is going to be a delight for you. If you don't, you know, if history is somewhere in the same category as root canals for you, I promise we'll make this as interesting as possible. David and Sean have been working on a tap dance routine, you know, and <laughs> Maybe we can get them to do that. But I promise you, not only will we make it as interesting as possible, but as relevant to your life today as possible. It's going to be an overview of an overview of church history. 
So, you know, it's not, we're not going deep. There's no way to go deep. And, and, and look, when you're in seminary, you take a class like this, you're taking a lot of other classes that sort of dovetail with it. And you learn about <clears throat> systematic theology and about um, the, all the background to the, to the books of the Bible, Old and New Testament. We won't be having all of that. But I can assure you, you are going to know more about Scripture. And, and what's more important than that? Not just that you'll know facts, but you'll know better how to handle this word. Sometimes you just feel like, I don't know what to do with this. What am I going to do with this Bible? Well, it's going to be some work, but if you'll work at it, you'll be far better prepared to answer those questions. So you can sign up either on the city or we have these little slips that we put in the bulletin last week. There's some right out here on the island just outside the door where the bulletins are. Um... Or you can just show up Wednesday night. That'll be fine as well. And we're going to meet here only about once a month through November. The other classes are going to be online, so you're not going to have to be have your schedule <clears throat> disrupted too much. You'll be able to do it when you're able to. The sessions that we have at the church are going to be filmed and then put online. So even if you can't make one or any of the sessions at church, there'll be about four of those. The rest will be online then you can catch up. If you plan to attend this class, let me encourage you to go ahead and purchase the book that's going to be our textbook for the year, The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. Uh, This is volume one. We're only going to go through this first half of the class this fall, then we'll do the second half next fall. Uh, There's some tough reading in this book, and it's going to, for some of you, It'll be really difficult if you don't take the class. But if you take the class, it'll start to make sense. And even if you get nothing else but one thing out of each class, it will be (coughs) invaluable. And if none of that works, see me and we'll talk about a payment to get you here for this class, all right? Pat Garner's in town this weekend. And so, Pat, just get your checkbook out. We're going (coughs) to maybe line up and you can pay people to come. Well, the reason that I detoured to talk about this class goes back to the ways that God reveals himself to us. And all of that sort of is groundwork for what, and it's not, I'm I'm close to the end, so don't worry about that. But what God said about his covenant to David that wasn't as clear at that time. When he gave the word to David. All that we need to know about God is found in his word. We won't understand scripture, mind you, unless the Holy Spirit opens our minds and helps us to understand it. But the Holy Spirit wrote the word so he can help us understand the word. Even though he helps us to understand truth as we sit down with the word Truth was designed to be hammered out in community. God designed for us to learn about God, not on our own. That's why it's so troubling. And don't don't yield to the temptation to say, you know what? Church just isn't my thing, but I I, I can learn about God. Me Me and God right here with the Word, the Holy Spirit, that's all I need. Well, it's true at a teeny level. That you can learn about God on your own. 
But if you're not in community, it's very easy to get on the wrong track. And you can be a long way from truth before you know it. Essentially, orthodoxy is this. Whether or not a church is orthodox is answered in this way. What does the majority of the church believe? Not just this church, but what do the majority believe? That's essentially orthodoxy. There were groups that said, I don't believe Jesus is fully God. Others that said, I don't believe Jesus is fully man. But the majority, following a few of the great teachers of the day, said, this is what we believe. And the teachers weren't just giving new ideas. They were saying what everybody already believed about the scriptures. So we, we spend so much time saying things like, well, if the, if, the, if the majority's going in that way, you better watch it. That we are suspicious of the majority. But remember this, what we believe about God in His Word that is right is what the majority believes. That's what orthodoxy is. And we want to be right in what we believe about God. So, and that's what happened with the Davidic covenant, though it was not even called a covenant. I mean, it took time for the teachers of the law to begin to realize that God was promising the Messiah. Look, you say in Genesis 3.15, God promised the Messiah. That's true. Adam, Eve, they didn't know anything about a Messiah. And it was well after David before the concept of Messiah began to take shape. Uh, In David's time, those who studied the law were looking for a prophet. Um, Moses had had prophesied that a prophet like him, and he was told this by God, a prophet, I'm going to give a prophet like you for his people. Prophets played a particularly important role in the covenant community. They brought direct messages from God, just like Nathan did to David. Thus says the Lord. And then they gave the word. There are people who are prophetic-like today. But once the scripture was done, nobody can say, God has given me a specific word for you. And be, you may have insight, you may have discernment, and God may have given you that discernment. But God did not tell you directly in the same way that he told the writers of scripture. Thus says the Lord. So prophets did that, and they had an enormously important role. Apostles and prophets did that in the early church. And after the apostles died, we believe it was sealed. And what we need to know is found in Scripture. Sometimes the prophets would bring good news, but often the news was harsh for the people had failed to keep their end of the covenant of law. Which is why we desperately need a new covenant. Well, the Davidic covenant begins to move us in that direction. David... I'm going to send a king who is going to be king forever. In Deuteronomy 18, God seemed to indicate that a prophet like Moses would arise who would be far greater than Moses. Now he's saying it's a king. Prophets worked alongside priests uh, who not only represented God to the people, but also represented the people to God. They made sacrifices on behalf of The people asking for God's forgiveness and favor for the covenant people. 
It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have surprised anyone if the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 had actually been a priest. Priests were prophets sometimes. That was no problem. Because the priests were from the tribe of Levi, then you had the other tribes, but then the Davidic covenant comes along. Now God has promised that a king whose kingdom will be eternal will come from David. If you read all of 2 Samuel 7, you'll realize that this prophecy, like so many prophecies in the Old Testament, had that application for the present, but also for the future as well. And this promise to David created somewhat of a dilemma. I mean, how could a king of God's choosing come from the line of Judah, also be a priest who must come from the, from the tribe of Levi? Judah, kings, Levi, priest. But it was beginning to form in the minds of people that God designed his Messiah to be prophet, priest, and king. Actually, it would be much later before people would recognize all of those benefits wrapped up in one person. Um, first, know that this prophet and king were first and uppermost in people's minds when they were looking for God's Messiah. <clears throat> but God designed that the Messiah would also be a priest because a priest is going to have to offer sacrifice for sins. And so he had planned a spotless lamb of God who would die to take away the sins of the world. How do we resolve this dilemma? Well, we've already talked about this in our study of Genesis. But look again just a moment at Psalm 110. Um, verse 4 talks about you are a priest forever. The last line. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. To whom is David referring when he writes this psalm? Well, Verse 1 tells us, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You remember, Jesus came to the nation of Israel and he essentially said, I am the one that all the prophets pointed to, Isaiah in particularly pointed to me. And the Pharisees said, you are not the Messiah. And Jesus Time and again fulfilled Old Testament scriptures. And yet they refused to look to him. And so right toward the end. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says. The Messiah. God's chosen one. Whose son is he? And they said David. Everybody knew. The Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And he says well then why does. Why does David say. Who was he talking about when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the father is greater than the son. And that mindset, the father always was greater than the son. And yet David is talking about his Lord. They had no answer because there was no way they could refute Jesus on the basis of Scripture. This is what Jesus was tell us, uh, telling us in essence. That David was saying. His, this is his interpretation of Psalm 
the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David's Lord, who was Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Chances are, you see what was happening? They knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. They had tried to deny that that Jesus was from the line of David, but they knew. They'd done their homework. They knew where he, who, who he was. And they were saying, God's not, you, you're coming here claiming to be God. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's what the scripture says. The Lord said to my Lord, God and the Lord said to my Lord, equal, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Chances are the Pharisees didn't answer because they knew he was right. They hated him, and so they weren't about to acknowledge what was happening before their very eyes. The Messiah had come. God's promise to his people had come from the line of Judah, just as he said in 2 Samuel 7, which, which contains what we know as the Davidic covenant. It had been prophesied so many times before you know some of these verses. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And Ezekiel 34, 23, 24. And I will... Set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So the king from the line of David would also be shepherd. This king will, in God's time, restore the earth to to the state that it was before sin marred the land. Adam was intended to rule over God's creation until he sinned and sin began to rule over him. Who rules your life is the answer. I mean, is the question. I'm, I'm sure the answer is not What day is it, but what time of day is it? That's who's ruling my life. Jesus is ruling it, or I'm ruling it. One thought before a final appeal for you to yield your life to God's king who would rule over you lovingly and caringly like a shepherd rules over his sheep. The promise to David in 2 Samuel came before David's great sins of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 11. Even if you've not been guilty of David's sins, no doubt there are times you wonder, how could God still love me and lead me because of my sin? The short answer is that God's covenant promise is not based on your works. Not based on your ability to keep His demands. Though we are called not only to trust Him, but to obey Him. Listen to what Bruce Walkie had to say about this order of God's promise in David's sin found in 2 Samuel. The narrator, the writer of 2 Samuel, the narrator subtly instructs us that the beneficiary's darkest crimes do not annul the covenants of divine commitment. Now, that's good news for some of you today. You've been 
looking at your life and you're saying, how could God have anything to do with me? Well, it's not up to you, it's up to God. And when you recognize that this is the kind of king who rules over you, why would you not want to serve him? Why would you not want to obey the one who gave his life so that you might live? He didn't do anything to deserve or to earn your position. Nor can you keep it or lose it. So, do you want him to rule your life? I'm going to guess the answer is yes. His ways are far better than your ways, I can assure you. If you have failed your king, ask his forgiveness. And find your place in service, wherever that may be. Let's, let's pray. Father, the problem with Jesus being king is that we already hold that position in our lives and we kind of like it. Well, we like it until we recognize what a mess we can make of ourselves ruling our own lives. Thank you for the promise from the Old Testament that you would send a king who would rule forever. We need Jesus as our king. Thank you for making a way for covenant breakers. Lord, for those of us who have broken your law, for sending your son, Jesus, whose blood makes up the new covenant, that you have given to us. Write your law on our hearts. Draw us to yourself. May we trust you with such hearts that obedience follows naturally. Well, it's never natural, but supernaturally. Make us like your children. Make us to be the light that you have called us to be. 